Today we're going to continue cracking the code of spy movies pre-title sequences. This time, we're going to look at the wonderful and a bit wacky pre-title sequence in Goldfinger. This is Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. I'm Vicky Hodge. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Let's get to the pre-title sequence right now. First of all, the pre-title sequence in Goldfinger has set the bar for all future Bond films in terms of how the pre-title sequence is treated and is so prominent a part of each movie. Guy Hamilton was brilliant in encapsulating all the traits and characteristics of Bond from his stealthiness, toughness, blunt instrument of the government kind of spy, womanizer, coolness, dapperness, and determination to succeed at whatever it is he's doing, all rolled up into the pre-title sequence in Goldfinger. This is brilliant. He sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, Goldfinger is considered by many to be the movie that set the formula for James Bond movies for many years to come. The first Bond pre-title was From Russia With Love. However, that one was very much opening the movie and letting us know that Donald Red Grant was an assassin trying to kill James Bond. The Goldfinger pre-title sequence, on the other hand, has almost nothing to do with the rest of the movie. There are two small tie-ins. The first is in the nightclub, and we'll talk about that later. And the second is when Felix meets Bond at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami Beach. Bond says, I'm on holiday. Might have known M wouldn't book me into the best hotel in Miami Beach out of pure gratitude. Maybe that holiday was for the job he did in the pre-title. It just isn't clear. Most people think the pre-title has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Are we in agreement, guys? Yeah, you know, I think there is a little connection there, and I think we hear it in the nightclub in the pre-title sequence. I think that's interesting because I saw an interview by Richard Maybaum, and he actually says, we thought we'd do this little mini thing in front that had nothing to do with the movie. Yeah. So it's kind of weird because they did try to seem to tie it together, but as the writer said, we did this just to uh, have some fun. Yeah, I think he's in Miami for two reasons. One, M wants him to trace the movements of Goldfinger, who happens to be there. And two, it's immediately after completing his mission, we assume, in Central America, which is not all that far from Miami. So deploying 007 on the Goldfinger mission might be believable since he was kind of in the area. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. As in From Russia With Love, the opening pre-title sequence begins with a dark dimly lit scene yeah and there's somebody walking we see these three large cylindrical objects they kind of look like silos yeah. we hear the sound of footsteps on the stone the camera pans back over a building and you start to hear the sound of water lapping the shore yeah i love the sounds yeah the sound effect here is brilliant yes it's really the only second sound we hear is this water noise now we know something's about to happen on the shore and we have to remember the camera is like our eyes it's turning to what catches our notice or intrigues us. So the camera is leading us somewhere. Yeah, yeah I love the details. A small fishing boat perhaps is in the left foreground. It looks like a little fishing boat as the light bathes a white structure in the background and perhaps a distant palm tree, it looks like, against the night sky. The touches of warmth with some lights that are on break the darkness. A dock light, a couple of exterior structure lights, just breaks the monotony of the darkness of the scene. So all of this is just beautiful in terms of a picture of what's happening. As any great pre-title sequence should do, it makes us wonder, where are we? Who is there? What is about to happen? The music also is suspenseful. 
oh, the music's great in here because it's kind of suspenseful. And then all of a sudden, the score changes to these horns. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of jarring. And we see the seagull swimming on top of the water. <laughs> and we have the great water sound effects. And the short bursts of horns that are alerting us that something's going to happen. In a second, we know why. We see that the seagull is attached to Bond's headgear of his dry suit as he cautiously looks around. He removes the headgear and tosses it into the water. There's a nice splash. Yeah. Again, great sound effect, and you see the splash of this yeah, thing. Good idea, but it's though. probably not a good idea because <laughs> it's a pretty big splash. Yeah. But he's trying to be clandestine. So, you know, what do you guys think of this seagull thing? Yeah, it's Bond, you know, there it is. I mean, it's cute. <laughs> Nikki, what do you think of it? Not much of a disguise. Uh, someone would have to no, be watching yeah. that second. It's an amusing disguise, and uh, I know we'll be speaking later on a, a bit more about that. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, it's the start of things, the start, the start of the formula, I suppose we see. Okay. Okay, so we see James Bond approach his scene in the water using a fake animal as a decoy. This concept gets used twice more in the future in James Bond movies. So this pre-title sequence has impact not only on many pre-title sequences to come, but on the main body of Bond movies in the future. First, there is a scene in Octopussy where James Bond, played by Roger Moore this time, approaches the palace in a fake alligator, or is it a crocodile? I think it's a crocodile. He uses it again as he crosses the water and meets Q when he finds out VJ was killed. We have all seen the crocodile submarine at the now closed Bond in Motion experience. It was very cool indeed. It'll be nice if they reopen that exhibit. Yeah, that yeah. Really yeah. Cool. Next in License to Kill, this time we have Timothy Dalton as James Bond, and we see Bond approaching the wave crest in a manta ray outfit. As the movie progressed, the animals got more realistic looking, in my opinion. Up close, none of them were believable, but the further away you got and later in the series, the more realistic they became. I must admit, I can't imagine Daniel Craig wearing an animal disguise, can you? I'm not, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not, not sure if that is something they will ever return to within the franchise. I'm not seeing that, no. <laughs> I, I do like the manner uh, in License to Kill, though. That's... Maybe the ability to wear an animal outfit is going to be uh, one of the search criteria for the next Bond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. That'll be nice in the interview. Put this on. <laughs> oh, no, no, get out. You're out. <laughs> anyway, so now Bond's continuing his little mission here. We don't know what it is exactly still. He walks past this white building, and on the building is the word Controlio on the wall. And with the gun, which he shoots a, a grappling hook type device up and over this wall. So if you look at the wall that he's going to shoot the grappling device over, you can make out the words Ramirez export company you can't see the z that's the only thing you can't make out and we find out later from the discussion that someone's going to have with bond that ramirez is the one behind is he's the... really the one that gets that bond ends up taking his mission against yeah yeah one thing to note here he's wearing a dry suit as he emerges and we don't see him remove any flippers and they don't show his feet i love that However, in, in the next part of the sequence he's wearing black shoes are we supposed to believe that he's swatting those, or is it just a cupid of editing? Well, he's walking. You see the bottom of his shoes. Yeah, I love like it. A leather bottom. You never would have been swimming in those. Yeah, that's not too convenient to be swimming in those. But you know, it's Bond. We don't see him change, but it is funny because 
when you see it, you see it and you go, oh, shit, yeah. what the hell is and the that? The thing is, if he was swimming in those black shoes, which I doubt it, he would be leaving sort of wet footprints, which is, you know, yeah. indicating that you know, somebody sees them, there's somebody in the building. Yeah, and he'd be squishing too as he walked, which wouldn't be too good. This is Bond. It's not always all, we may be overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking Again. of overthinking it, this Bond. gun thing confused me. All right. So if you look closely at the gun, yeah. it has a fishing reel attached to the end of it. I mean, if you just if you just look, you know, free freeze frame it, it's a fishing reel. And he shoots the gun, and then we see a rope appear and a grappling hook grab onto the surface of the rock. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to, this is only three seconds of film, but I had to watch this and rewatch it and rewatch it. Yeah. Because when he fires the gun, the rope comes up from his left side, right. and it's not—it doesn't start the instant he hits the trigger. So it goes up. It's not coming from that re- the fishing reel. No. His backpack moves, so makes you think the rope is coming out of the backpack. However, how did the grappling hook get hooked up to the rope? You never see him attach the rope to the grappling hook. So I ended up freeze framing the grappling hook when it hooks in. Mm-hmm. And you can see there's a filament like it came out of the fish, a fishing line, if you will. Yeah. That's attached between the hook and the rope. Now, I suppose the gun shoots the grappling hook with the fishing line attached to both ends of it. However, you never see that attachment happen because Bond takes that gun like this and there's no, you know, if, if they were attached already, yeah, the filament would have hit his head. Yeah, there's no time for attaching it. Then it's all pre, predetermined, Tom. It's yeah, all so, set up already, so ready for him to use. <laughs> but so you never see this attachment. So it really yeah. confused me. But then again, I would assume that they probably didn't think somebody would spend over a half hour looking at this three seconds of the pre-title sequence. Yeah, Tom, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've got that kind of time. What can I say? (laughs) Then one of the guards hears the grappling hook, of course, and walks over towards it. There seems to be cactus plants around him and one of these silos-type structures. Again, where are we? You know, we've seen palm trees, we've seen cactus, and there are some Central American countries that have both, but we don't know where exactly he is. As he walks to investigate, Bond's already up and over the wall, and he knocks the guard out. So, okay, the wall only looked like maybe it was 20 feet anyway or, or so. And so, yeah, we could believe that Bond, he's Bond, he can make it up over the wall in, in a very short time. So that's been one of the criticisms of this scene is like how the hell can he get up over that wall by the time this guy walks over three feet yeah, he, he had three seconds from the time he fires that gun to the time the guard gets knocked out is three <laughs> seconds of film time okay he probably couldn't make it up in three seconds yeah. but you know i'm going to give them a little bit of a willing suspension of disbelief here and say hey, okay it may have been like uh, 20 seconds or something and peter hunt did like to cut editing tight so we'll, we'll give it that yeah. i guess so then Bond runs again in those black leather shoes, yeah. carrying a pack, and he's running towards one of the cylindrical structures just as another guard disappears between two of the structures. Mm. He runs around part of the structure on its side, searches for a switch. He obviously knew it would be there, so he's very well prepared and knows where this hidden button is to open the entrance. And this is a more self-assured Bond, decisive, moving with ease, unlike the fake Bond we saw in the pre-title sequence in From Russia with Love. 
Yeah, that's because this time it is really Bond. <laughs> so we see a square door swing open and Bond enters, uh, closing the door behind him. And it looks like an office of some type, um, but huge. Mm-hmm. This is a classic Ken Adams set. The camera angle is now below Bond looking up. Yes. You have an oval ceiling and light reminiscent of the room in Dr. No. Exactly. Where Professor Dent tells Dr. No that Bond identified the rock samples as he's coming from Crab Key. Dr. No then has Dent pick up the tarantula. The room in Goldfinger has far more stuff in it, though. The room in Dr. No only had a chair and a <laughs> table with the tarantula. Yeah. And some of the grating is even visible, though, on a square ceiling structure. Yeah, yeah. I thought the same thing when I saw it, too. It's like, hey, that's Dr. No. <laughs> well, no, that's kind of Adam design. It's, yeah, I know, but it, part you, of his divine, you do you have know, this. Uh, I, lo- I love the connections. I love the connections. Yeah. It's like you, if you look at a Frank Lloyd Wright house, you know it's a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yeah. If you look at the set, you know it's a Ken Adams set. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Bond takes off a tube of some type of putty explosive that was wrapped around his waist. Now, there are three barrels marked nitro. We see three of them. Well, that's convenient that they're so clearly marked. Yeah. If the drug lords were clever, they would have marked those drums nitro and had the real stuff <laughs> hidden elsewhere. Yeah, I like as that. As a precautionary measure. Yeah, be sneaky, guys. Yeah, how about that yeah. for an idea? Now we must assume Bond is in a hurry as it seems that squeezing out the plastic explosives from the tubing gives us some great sound effects. It would not be necessary for the plastic explosives to work. They would have worked even if they kept the tube according to some critics. One touch I really liked was that Bond pulled the detonator out of his backpack, the one that we assume where the rope came from. So often he doesn't have a backpack with him, yet he can pull a safe cracker from his pocket and knee pads and a ninja hood (laughs) appear. From nowhere in You Only Live Twice. It was nice to see that he had something to carry his devices in, in the pre-title sequence. I mean, you could imagine him having a candid conversation with Q about the significances of the backpack (laughs) (laughs) pre-mission. Or Q giving him, saying, okay, now here's your grappling hook, and here's the... Hey, where am I putting all this stuff, Q? Putting all the poppers and (laughs) zips on the buckets. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's it's nice. It's it's a little more realistic that he's got something to carry all this stuff in, which, like you said, sometimes he doesn't. Now, what I really (laughs) love about this scene is that James Bond's facial expressions are cool. As he takes off the backpack and extracts the timer and sets the igniter, as we're talking about, there are expressions on his face we could see ourselves making in those unknown, uncertain kind of circumstances. Mostly done with his mouth. Watch all the details of his mouth movement, indicating stress, accomplishment as he sets the timer, and after checking his watch, which reads about 12.11, while the timer is set for 12.20 for the explosives to go off, and he dashes away. So he's got about nine minutes to get the hell out of there. But his expressions again on his face are, are great. The brilliance of this scene is that the camera stays with the nitro barrels. I love that. And we see Bond leaving as he came in, in the distance, with the crisp sound of the timer ticking away right in our ears because we are close to the barrels, because that's where the camera is. This is fabulous. I love that part. Great stuff. We see Bond jump down by the shore, and then he begins to remove his dry suit to reveal a crisp white dinner jacket. Yeah, (laughs) a nice touch. He reaches into a pocket and he pulls out a red carnation for his lapel. (laughs) Perfect bond. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Great stuff. Interestingly enough, director Steven Spielberg has always had a strong desire to make a James Bond movie, thus spawning the creation of Indiana Jones. 
Now, in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from 1984, we see Indiana wearing a similar tuxedo mm. and a red carnation in a Shanghai nightclub. Mm. Further links to Goldfinger feature in the opening sequence because it bears no connection to the main storyline. Yeah, cool. This look is fantastic, and it's a great ruse they must have invented out of thin air for the movie, right? Uh, no, not exactly. Not exactly. You know, it, it looks ridiculous. You're taking off this dry suit, and you got this beautiful tuxedo kind of thing on your underneath it. i don't think that's ridiculous i think that's badass yeah, it is badass fabulous. but it looks like ah, oh, come on that's impossible well in 1941 there was a dutch agent called tazelar who was part of the dutch resistance and with british help got ashore near the hague once ashore he removed the wetsuit and it was a specially designed wetsuit to reveal an evening suit he infiltrated a nazi party to try to extract <laughs> other Dutch resistance fighters. This really happened. Now, his evening wear would make him look like he belonged, Tazelar. And he doused himself in alcohol to pretend he was drunk so he could kind of fit in, allowing him to slip past the guards and into the party. This is all real stuff. Anyway, a British screenwriter, Paul Dane, who worked on the screenplay for this and another great spy movie, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, among other movies, was called in to polish up the Goldfinger script. He knew about this World War II incident because he was a former intelligence officer in World War II. Hmm. The original script did not have this scene, and the scene was not in the Goldfinger novel. The idea likely came from Dane. It's a great touch. Appearing moments later in a club, he's looking good. And he examines his watch, and it's almost 12.20. We see the bodega with the woman dancing, and her name is Benita. She was played by actress Nadja Reagan, who also played Karen Bay's mistress in From Russia With Love. Now, this is a lower-key bodega. It's not a high-end nightclub. Some men are wearing regular jackets and ties, but many aren't even wearing a jacket. Yet, James Bond walks into the club with his white dinner jacket and red carnation lapel looking suave, cool, yeah. and in control. However, when he goes to light his cigarette, he looks at his watch with the appropriate product placement for his Rolex Submariner. <laughs> if he was really so cool and in control, wouldn't he ignore his watch and just let the explosion happen? Uh, I don't we've, know. We've seen in other Bond movies that sometimes his actions are monitored by the enemy. Yet, in From Rush With The Love, he asks the desk clerk twice if the clocks were right while waiting for the bomb to explode. Here, in this nightclub, he's checking his watch. If I were watching him in either case, I would have known that he was behind the ensuing explosion. He lights his cigarette, and as he does, we hear and see the huge explosion. Yeah, I, I don't Actually, know. I, 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 well, I, I never get that impression, Tom. No. I think he plays it cool. I, I believe he's just glancing at the time as cool as you like. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, you know, people check their watches, and... and what would make me suspicious is he's very calm after the explosion, not like the rest of the people. And the same thing in From Russia with Love. You know, bam, everything's blowing up. People are scrambling all over the place, and he's kind of, you know, walking. Cool. Yeah, but it's like his anticipation of the, this should be happening now seems kind of out of place to me. Yeah, but, people look at watches, especially yeah. Rolex. <laughs> well, yeah, he had to get the product placement in, I guess. Yeah, there you go. But lately in movies, when somebody blows up something, you see them walking away in slow motion. They don't look up, They don't look back, and the huge explosion happens. Yeah. Now, in this case, Bond's checking his watch. Now, when the explosion happens, he doesn't react to it. 
So there's the, the calm and in control. Uh, well, anyway, you're right about the rest of the people in the club. They're screaming and scrambling and leaving, all except Benita, <laughs> Bond, and a man who we assume is the club manager or the owner. But as you say, Bond walks calmly towards the bar where the gentleman says to him, congratulations, Mr. Moreras and his friends will be out of business. Remember it said Ramirez Export Company on the wall. Yeah. And Bond says at least he won't be using herring-flavoured bananas to finance his revolutions. <laughs> he tells Bond to not go... I actually back. love that line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he's so calm when he says it, but it's a beautiful line. Like, yeah, yeah. heroin-flavoured bananas. <laughs> That's good. He tells Bond to not go back to his hotel as they'll be watching him. He also tells him that there is a plane leaving for Miami in an hour. This is the most direct tie-in to the pre-title sequence and the post-title opening in Miami Beach and the Fontainebleau Hotel. Bond says he'll be on that plane. But Bond has some unfinished business to take care of (laughs) as he watched the woman, Benita, who was dancing, exit to a stairway. So the next scene, he enters her room and she's in the bathtub. As he removes his dinner jacket, he reveals his gun and holster and he throws her a towel and she gets out and they start kissing. As they hug, his gun pokes her in the chest, and she asks why he always wears the thing. Ah, she knows him well. This isn't the first time. Yeah. It's nice that he threw her a towel, unlike in Thunderball, where he gives her the slippers. But so it was very nice of him here. <laughs> uh, one of the great Bond lines comes out of this, though, where he says one thing and absolutely does not mean it. <laughs> He says, in response to why do you always wear your gun, he says, I have a slight inferiority complex. Oh, where was I? Oh, yes. And he moves in on her again. Now, he doesn't say, where were we? (laughs) He says, where was I? (laughs) I was moving in on, I'm going to go back and move in on you again. So it's just like, yeah, I have an inferiority complex. Yeah, right. No, not really. Nope, not going there. He knows better, and he's just lying right to her face. like, where was I? I love this. It's great. It's a great line with a lot of depth to it because of that. Yeah, yeah. And as he kisses her, another ill-equipped would-be Bond killer (laughs) is about to hit Bond over the head with a club. There you go. And the woman sees the man as she's facing him, and Bond's back is towards him. But no, as Bond is kissing Benita, he sees a reflection in her eye of the henchman who is credited as the character Capungo. Now, that's a nice trivia question for you. What was the name of the guy, yeah. the henchman, in the pre-title yeah. of, of Goldfinger? Mm. He's played by an actor named Alf Joint. It always impresses me how Bond sees things happening in various reflections just in the nick of time to save his life. <laughs> but could you really see a reflection in your eyeball? It's amazing how he always does mm. that. <laughs> <laughs> He's done it several times. I'm not sure that you're going to see no, it off of an no, I'm eyeball. I'm not sure either, but see. Well, I pulled a Tom here, and I took a close-up picture of my eye wide open, and I could, upon examining the picture, clearly see the window that was in front of me reflected in my eye. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bond and Capungo get into a fight who ends up in the bathtub that Benita just got out of. Fortunately, she didn't drain the tub. Anyway, Capongo ends up trying to take Bond's gun from his holster that was hanging near the tub. We've talked about this in how other Bond movies, the henchmen are inept. 
this guy has Bond's gun in his hand for four <laughs> seconds and doesn't get one shot off. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> on, isn't it? You got the yeah, gun. Why, why didn't he walk in with a gun in the first place? He's willing to shoot him now. Why don't you walk in with a gun and shoot him then? You know. <laughs> well, Bond throws a UV lamp into the tub and Kapongo gets electrocuted. Yeah. And that's, of course, where Bond says shocking, positively shocking. Me, I'm thinking, hey, it's a good thing this lamp had a really, really, really long cord. Because you look at this thing and it's like 20 feet. You know, it's like no lamp would have a 20-foot cord. But, okay, what the hell? We'll go with it. And so, you know, as as Bond says the, his shocking, positively shocking line, the Bonita is recovering from her getting hit on the head and the floor and moaning and so on. He puts his jacket on coolly and walks out the door pretty cool he's always cool and he's like yeah whatever i guess i am finished with my business now you know <laughs> now one aside here it's kind of a fun fact for me is in the video the making of goldfinger elf joint who played Capungo, talks about his experience with the role and he tells us that the actor originally cast to play Capungo was a real life cat burglar and he was caught in the act <laughs> really. the day before he was supposed to do the scene for goldfinger so Alf says he got the part because the makeup guy said he had high cheekbones uh-huh. and that he could be made to look like a Mexican more than anybody else. Wait, wait, who said the makeup guy said that? <laughs> the makeup guy said that. All right, so wait, wait, we're, we're we're trying to figure out where the heck they are, what country Bond is in blowing up these drugs, right? So we know it's probably Central America or something, though that means it's between Mexico and South America. So there's Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Belize, but... <laughs> Wait, you just said he could be made up to look like a Mexican more than anybody else. So wait a minute. So was he in Mexico? Elf may have just told us something that we never knew. That's possible. Yeah. And then he goes on and he says, as I hit the water, the flashbulbs go, the UV lamp comes on, and the steam comes out. The force of the steam, the hose pipe wrapped itself around my leg and gave me some sort of bad burn. (laughs) He said everybody thought it was down to my acting, but it wasn't. It was down to sheer pain, actually. <laughs> oh my and God. why I love this is it seems to be a trend in this movie because the actor Harold Sakata, who played Ajab, burned his hands in the scene when he got electrocuted trying to remove his hat from the metal bars in Fort Knox. Yeah, wow. So getting burned in the filming of this movie is not good if you're a henchman. Yeah, and, and all this electrocution stuff, and so on. Now, Tom, I'm assuming you've done some research on this, and you think something like a UV lamp thrown into a bathtub could electrocute someone and kill them in the bathtub? I mean, we've seen this in other movies, like The Bride of Chucky and so on. Is this real? Yes, it's real. Okay. Yes, it's real. But how do we back that up? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, this one was easy. It turns out that Mythbusters actually did an experiment to see if this could happen. I'll put a link to the video of the experiment in the episode notes if you want to see the full four-minute video with the different tests they did. Mm. Anyway, they dropped a curling iron, a clothes iron, and a toaster to see what would happen if an appliance was dropped into a bathtub. Their experiment concluded that an appliance dropped into a bathtub could definitely kill you. They state that 70 milliamps could kill you. I won't go into all the other numbers they tell you in the video. Good, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) And the closer that the appliance landed to the person... And the more heating elements exposed, the more voltage you would receive. I mean, in the U.S., this is one of the reasons why we have the ground fault interrupters or GFIs on our outlets in the kitchen and bathrooms, yeah. at least here in the U.S. 
I don't know about other countries. Vicki, do you have GFI outlets in your bathrooms in the UK? Well, we don't have any electrical points in bathrooms whatsoever here. You may have homes wow. with very low voltage shaver sockets, but it must be fitted at least three meters from the bath or a shower. Oh, wow. But some homes don't even have a light switch in the bathroom. They are normally on the landing area. Ah, wow. Yeah, well, well this would be shocking. Positively <laughs> shocking. I mean, sounds like <laughs> That's it. Bond puts his holster back on, leaves the room, and we get the powerful title sequence sang by Dame Shirley Bassey. Cue the music. I think this is one of the best pre-title sequences of any movie. Yeah. In a presentation we saw talking about pre-title sequences given by Raymond Benson and the film critic Dan Geyer, they ranked the Goldfinger pre-title as the best of all time. Wow. The steal a line from Catch Me If You Can, I concur. (laughs) It was fabulous, (laughs) and so is the title sequence. It's fabulous, too. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. This has been Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. I'm Vicky Hodges. With our quick fire look at the pre-title sequence in Goldfinger. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, right now through your favorite app and on YouTube as well. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.